This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. School will start a week today and the general anxiety is mounting and it's not just parents and children who are anxious. It looks like the teachers unions are headed for a showdown with the Ford government, which uh, may in fact be business as usual. They're asking the Ontario Labour Board for an expedited hearing on their allegation that the arrangements contravene workplace safety rules. And here's how the Premier is playing it. I'm begging now for the teachers' unions to work with us. And I want to really, really emphasize, you know, I I support our frontline teachers. They're incredible. Uh, I know, I have confidence they're going to step up to the plate. Well, That is how he's playing it. And this, as a new poll, shows that Ford is the second most popular premier in the country. Now, adding to the anxiety, the authorities are warning that a second wave of COVID-19 is all but inevitable. And south of the border, there's mounting violence and polarization that's playing out as a feature of election strategy. So what do you make of all of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, the CEO of Variety Village. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Hey. Karen, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can hear you. It's it's all good. I'm going to start with Charles because the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, came out of the Witness Protection Program this morning. <laughs> and and uh, he waded into the back-to-school debate. Uh, what is your uh, analysis of that, Charles? Well, I think you have to look at it in the overall context of what's happening across Canada and across the world. We're seeing an increase in cases in most of the large provinces. We're seeing, uh, obviously, what's happening in the United States. But we're also, most concerningly, seeing a resurgence in Europe in places like Germany, France, Italy, Spain. So there is every reason to think that a second wave is imminent. I mean, the Canadian numbers are probably best explained by the fact that we have opened up our economy, but no one's really quite sure if the second wave is already here. So in the context of the classroom, um, it's, it's obviously of great concern, but I think Stephen is absolutely right. The one thing the Ford government has failed to do, and the one thing that probably would have made the biggest difference of all, was reducing sizes of classes. And that was an option. The premier has said he's done everything in his power to do what he can do to protect our kids, except this one little detail. And, and that is of significant concern. The other issue is, um, you know, teachers, principals, school board trustees 
really don't have a lot of information as to what the overall game plan is here. It seems the government is intent on saying we'll deal with it as it comes. And um, that has created a huge amount of uncertainty and obviously a lot of tension with the unions. I mean, we've seen this government when it first came to power very much on an ideological bent. It was intent on increasing class sizes from an average of 22.5 students per class to 28 students per class. And, um, you know, it's just I don't think anyone could afford seeing what's happening now. But the chickens are coming home to roost. So everyone is holding their breath, myself especially, given that I have two young children going back to school next week. Yeah. Um, John, uh, what do you make of Mr. Del Duca's appearance? I mean, uh, it's true. A lot of people are really concerned about the class size issue. But to stand there and say that that Ford's been absent when they've been in front of us so much, um, I don't know how that worked. What do you think? Well, I, I, quite frankly, I don't think anyone's listening to Stephen Del Duca. I'm not sure anyone knows who he is. Um, I think the fact that he has been absent um, from the very beginning since he became leader of the Liberal Party has hurt him and has hurt his party considerably. But I think also to, to, to throw criticism and not solutions uh, is easy for an opposition leader, especially someone who wants to claim to be uh, to be premier. But look, I think at the end of the day, we're all parents and we all have kids that, that are going to be going to school. So there's no question that we're all anxious. And And I think that you know, the fact that we're into, what, month five, six of this pandemic, um, you know, and, and that we've learned a lot from the perspective of what we can and what we cannot do and, and what our leaders have been able to do. And I'm thankful that here in Canada, our leadership, and I give the prime minister credit as well, uh, right down to our premiers and our, and our respective mayors, <clears throat> have all listened and have all done what they can by listening to the health experts and and sort of guiding their decisions based on experts and professionals and people who've been through pandemics before. And I think that's why Canada, by and large, is leading uh, the G7. And in fact, I would almost say globally uh, with respect to to how we're dealing with with the COVID. And, and, you know, obviously we've lost lives, but but I think it could have been far worse if if we were doing things that, that were happening in the States. So all that to say, though, Libby, that is, look, Kids have to go back to school. Parents want kids to go back to school, and kids need to go back to school um, for the sake of, of, of mental health for our kids, for the sake of our economy to continue. But, you know, that said, there's going to be precautions, and we have to be careful. And this premier has done everything he possibly can to ensure that that by schools opening, that he's following every letter of the law by, by, health, by health experts and professionals. He's putting... Uh, Dr. Hewer in charge of of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the uh, school back to school sort of uh, plan. He's got operational guidance that he's given the school boards. He's throwing in a lot of money in the feds as well to uh, to PPEs to ensure schools have. So he's doing everything he possibly can to ensure that kids can go back in a safe way. And I just have to say, look, we just have to look back to March when this pandemic was happening and everybody was at a state of, of crisis and not knowing what's going on. You know, the grocery stores, the truck drivers, the healthcare workers, the emergency service workers all came and became heroes because they adapted to what the situation was to ensure that the economy and that people are going back together. And what the premier is saying is to teachers and to principals and to school board trustees is, look, 
we need to do we need to have a can do this is his words a can do attitude and let's just see if we can do it but but knowing that there could be a problem but we've got we've got precautions in the event that there is something that happens you can't ask for anything more than that with with the unknown that we're in okay uh karen uh, uh do you buy that explanation you're a parent uh you know the one thing that ford did not relent on was this issue of class sizes that a lot of people are upset about uh you know personally i also think a lot of it i mean it's it's an unknown there there is no way well, to make it more that's that's certain. it Libby. like no one has a solution nobody knows what the you know quote unquote right thing to do is i mean i think to john's point and and i echo it very strongly one of the most important things we need to do right now i mean back in march the most important thing we needed to do was protect the healthcare system and stop the spread of covid and but I think there's a growing recognition that this is not with us for a short period of time. This is likely the reality for the next two years of our life. So if we accept that, and because I don't believe that there's any cure that, that, that um, a vaccine is going to bring to us in the short term, if we accept that, then we have to say, I think collectively, now that we've, we've protected the healthcare system, we're doing our best to contain the spread of COVID, there may or may not be a second wave. Of, I mean, we do, we're doing everything we can to prevent that wave from surging. Getting the kids back to school is, an, is the now most important thing that we need to focus on, not just, to, not just because we know that the mental, aspect, mental health aspects of keeping them at home for too long have now started to reveal themselves and it's for the economy, but also for these kids. They need their education. And to have, to have this gap of education is, will be felt in years to come. And so if we accept that, then, then I think Ford is right. We, we are working in the face of a ton of unknowns. But can we all agree that it's really important that we do this together and that we work through the unknowns as we encounter them? Because there is, there is no government in the world that opened up the schools with all of the answers. Not- uh, uh, so, uh, again, Karen, are, uh, do you think that they should have lowered the class sizes or are you satisfied with the way things are going? I, they... I'm satisfied with the way things are going because the reality is they're doing a quadmaster system and the kids are still learning on, um, for the high schools at any event, they, uh, mm-hmm. the kids are still learning um, remotely for half the time anyway. And for the younger grades, again, because I had the experience of running camps where I had 90 kids in here every week, you know, we, we saw how to make it work. And so you, we don't have unlimited resources. They just don't exist. And so I know the teachers have been fighting for smaller class sizes for some time. It's been pretty consistent. I'll give them credit for that. And now they're saying, you know, now or never with the smaller class sizes. But we only, that we only can do what we have the resources available to do. And so the kids need to get back to school. Uh, before we move on to the next person, Karen, what did, what did you make of uh, Stephen Del Duca's appearance today? Well, it's, it's, it's nice that he made an appearance. I think that um, it's, you know, the liberals have to be a voice of opposition. I think it's healthy um, as we move into the, into the phases of, you know, how we're going to recover from this. I think it's healthy for a government to be held to account by, by an opposition. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, whether this was the right foray back into being that voice, I don't know. But I guess he felt quite strongly that he needed to stand up in defense of the teachers, and I, I suppose the teachers felt the NDP weren't doing that job for them. 
Okay, I, I want to move along to yesterday's announcement in Ottawa about some deals for vaccine. Last week, I uh, had a fascinating interview with uh, Dr. Amir Adaran, who wrote a very interesting piece in McLean's, basically saying that Canada bungled the procurement of vaccines, that the two agreements they were touting about a month ago were intense to purchase and not purchase orders. And as a result, we would be at the end of the line. One of the companies they signed an agreement with yesterday is uh, not that close. I mean, there are seven companies with uh, stage three clinical trials and uh, the ones, the one that, that they signed with is stage two, uh, though they did number doses that we may get if these vaccines are approved. Uh, John, does that give you confidence? Uh, well, be, uh, full, full disclosure, uh, Johnson & Johnson is a, is a client of mine. Um, so I, want, I wanted you and your, your listeners to, to know that. But, but just in general, um, I, I think, look, any, I think the pharmaceutical industry uh, is working overtime to try to find a vaccine and, and to try to do what they can by ensuring that whatever they do is, is by the law and, and and up to Health Canada codes and whatnot. And I, and I think that, you know, we also sort of have to measure that with the fact that there's a huge desire amongst, you know, the population uh, to have a vaccine and governments, quite frankly, uh, ours and others to have a vaccine. And, and so there's this, this, you know, this battle going on for, for who can come up with, with the vaccine at the right time and, and with the, with the right doses and whatnot. So I just in general think that, you know, people are going to feel more comfortable um, in dealing with this pandemic, knowing that there's a vaccine out there that's been tested, that's safe, uh, and that's out there. And, and, you know, I think a lot of folks are hoping that it might be by the end of this year. It may very well be until the, until the, until next year that, that a vaccine is actually up and produced in enough doses where everybody can, can actually have them for those who want to have them. But I just think in all, uh, generally speaking, I think it's important and, and critical that pharmaceuticals continue on, on pace with, with trying to do what they can to get a vaccine up and running. Charles, are you confident in the government's strategy on this? Uh- well, I'm not confident in any strategy when it comes to vaccines. I mean, the thing is such a crapshoot writ large in terms of what will work, how long will it work, what percentage of the population will it work for. I mean, it just goes to so much about the virus that we don't know. We could very well be looking at a, a situation where it recurs much like the seasonal flu um, for many years to come which is to say that it will come back in a slightly different form and we will have to reinvent the wheel just about every time. And hopefully science and, and the pharmaceutical companies will get very, very good at that. But, I mean, people should obviously be concerned about, you know, the availability of a vaccine, whether it's efficacy, it's safety. I mean, these are all big-time issues. And I, I can pretty much guarantee at some point in the coming weeks, Donald Trump will triumphantly proclaim that America has developed a vaccine, just as Vladimir Putin did in Russia uh, a few weeks ago. I mean, and and it will just add to the general confusion and sense of panic when it comes to, you know, a vaccine that will put this thing to rest. I'm not sure we are going to put this thing to rest. I think we're talking about very, very fundamental changes to the way we go about our lives. And it will continue to have economic impacts. And we can be bravely saying, oh, our kids have to go back to school and we have to go back to work. But if this thing is spreading like wildfire come October, come November, I think we'll be rethinking that in a real hurry. 
Um, yeah, no question. Now, Karen, again, are you confident in the government's strategy about the way they're going about this with some deals that are just intent to purchase as opposed to our allies who have signed, sealed and delivered deals for doses of some of the ones that are furthest along? Yeah, I think it puts us at a disadvantage. There's no question because we will not be first in, the, in line to get the vaccine um, unless somehow you know, we're able to develop it ourselves, and I'm not sure where we stand License on it. that approach. Well, that, that was, uh, I don't want to interrupt, Karen, yeah. but that was another thing that Trudeau said yesterday that was very kind of offhand and unclear is like, yeah, we may be able to produce one of them uh, in Montreal, but the fact is other countries have license agreements. Right, right. Yeah, so we're not, you know, so I think it is... Um, it's a bit risky, the approach that's being taken with the vaccine, given that to date, uh, so much hope has been placed on a vaccine. So, uh, you know, I don't have that same hope. I hope, I mean, we all hope that it comes and it's working and it's effective and it's, you know, we can make enough doses for everybody. But, you know, I think the other thing that was disappointing for me yesterday was that Health Canada didn't um, approve for use the home testing uh, opportunity that's been made available so people can actually test from home whether they have the virus. And again, you know, it's not 100%, but if someone does test positive, then they can go and get the test. And it's a way to have more people have more information about uh, the risks that they could be exposed to or exposing others to. And Health Canada's approach was that, no, they didn't trust people to do it safely. Well, uh, that is a big issue for older people who are not comfortable necessarily going to a testing center, standing in line Mm -hmm. with a bunch of people who may have the virus for sometimes lengthy amounts of time to get tested. Uh, CARP uh, is lobbying. They want these at-home tests. Absolutely. And it's one thing when it's a nice sunny day and it's not, you know, when it's not too hot, but when it's a sunny day that you can stand in line, but when it's minus you know, minus 20, <laughs> people yeah. aren't going to be standing in line to get tested. So, again, if we accept that this is with us for some time, and as Charles pointed out, it's going to alter the way that we actually live for some time, then I think that there needs to be m- more trust placed in the population to do these kinds of things like home testing and also other things to help us through this, that we are taking more ownership and not just relying on the experts telling us. Uh, while I have you, Karen, what do you think there was a new rule as of last week allowing residents of long-term care to go out on visits? Yeah. So if they go out for the day, cool, just come back. If you going out overnight, you've got to self-isolate. It's up to the nursing homes to decide if that's okay. Mm-hmm. And a nursing home has to have a spot for people to self-isolate. So they can self-isolate. First of all, does this affect you and your dad? And and what do you think of it in general? Well, I think it's for my dad's uh, retirement home. They just permitted uh, what they call, quote, backyard visits. And so, and there's a strict protocol for if I take my father out of the retirement home, you know, what I need to do and the steps I need to take. But, you know, I personally think it's long overdue. Um, I All the visits I've had with my dad, we've been six feet apart. He can't hear me. I can't hear him. Oh, dear. And so to be able to just have your loved one home with you in a setting that's familiar, surrounded by their family, um, even if it's just for a brief period of time, I just think is going to be a tonic to so many families that have weathered the storm, um, and it's been quite difficult. Uh, but do you think those rules are, are too restrictive, or are they okay? Um, at this point, you know what, I think that if 
um, the rules are there. As long as you know what they are, then you can follow them. And um, I, I think that if, if those are the rules that keep the nursing homes and long-term care facilities feel like they can safely let these visits happen, then they're fine. Charles, is it your sense that this has fallen off the radar? That is my sense. The crisis is past. We're all anticipating a second wave, but I haven't seen any increased hiring. I haven't seen anything, uh, you know, any part of the things that we know will be necessary to avoid the kind of carnage that we saw in the first wave. Uh, do you mean the economic carnage as opposed to... I mean the long-term care carnage. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, listen, I think long-term care facilities have made great strides. And my firm, by way of disclosure, along with John's disclosure about pharmaceutical companies, my, my firm represents um, uh, a fairly major long-term care facility operator. And so I have some grounding in the kinds of steps that have been taken. And there are very good reasons why the numbers are down markedly in long-term care centers um, because they are defined spaces. And now that the protocols are in place, I'm actually quite optimistic that we'll be able to protect those much more than we will be able to protect against community spread. Um, I do believe that community spread is, is by far the bigger issue, especially when people do start heading back to work or in greater numbers, when we see greater numbers on uh, using transit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so the, the, the focus of concern really has shifted. That's not to say that there aren't vulnerable populations that we'll always have to be highly conscious of. I just think we have made some pretty commendable strides in uh, in recent months after what was undoubtedly and undeniably a, a human disaster. Okay, well, thanks for the disclosure, Charles. And John, John, what, do you think that this the long-term care issue has just fallen off the radar? Well, uh, no, not, not fallen off the radar so much, Libby, but I do think, though, and, and I give credit to the, the Premier who, you know, who said, recognized that there was a huge... Uh, uh, systemic problem with long-term care that was obviously uh, uh, magnified through the through the pandemic, uh, and and was was able to to throw money and, and attention and and some and some much needed um, uh, focus uh, on long-term care and has been able to speed up the uh, the construction of more long-term care facilities and and has been able to do it. So I, I agree with I agree with Charles on the fact that I do think that, you know, it's certainly on the right, it's in the right path and heading in the right direction. Um, I don't think it's fallen off and it shouldn't fall off, quite frankly. This is what happens sometimes maybe with some of these issues where, you know, they, they get the media focus and the attention at the time and then something else moves on and, and then things go back to normal in some way, shape or form and, and they don't get that, that necessary attention and, and need and support that they, that they deserve. So I don't think long-term care facilities are ever going to be off the map and quite frankly shouldn't be. I think what we've seen uh, and what we've, uh, what we've witnessed and in some cases like Karen, uh, who's, who's living it with, with her dad, um, <clears throat> it should never be off the radar. We should always have this as a top of mind issue from now on. Well, I, I would certainly hope so. I'm just uh, not convinced that, that that is the case. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Uh, I don't want to raise the temperature here, but I guess we should talk about what is going on in the United States. Uh, after falling in the polls because of the handling of the coronavirus, it looks like uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans have hit on their issue law and order. We see mounting violence in the states, some of which is spilling over here. Karen? 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think the Republicans, they changed the narrative on the Democrats. And the Democrats, I think, were, you know, hoping that they could get a message of hope and um, recovery and optimism out into the public. And the, the, Dem- the Republicans have shifted that narrative to law and order. We're the only ones that can protect you and keep you safe. Um, which, you know, Charles would agree is ironic in the extreme. That being said, because they're clearer with their messaging right now, it's resonating and it's cutting through some of the other noise. And so it is um, a bit of a danger spot, I think, for the Democrats right now in terms of how they play out the next couple months. Charles? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, when, when Donald Trump says Americans should be afraid, what he means is that Americans should be afraid of black people. And this has been a card that has been played by Republican candidates for the presidency for decades. It has been a highly effective card. Um, divisiveness is a major, major um, factor in American politics. Donald Trump has taken it to extremes, but he's not doing anything that we haven't seen before. The question now is whether enough white Americans have actually bought into the concept that there has to be a fundamental change, that it is no longer acceptable for um, a black male to die on video courtesy of a knee applied to his neck by a cop, or for a black male in Kenosha, Wisconsin, to receive seven bullets to his back, leaving leaving him paralyzed. And the math is very, very simple, notwithstanding the battleground states and how singularly important those 10 or 11 states are, the the Democrats have to win around 38% of white Americans to capture the presidency. I know that it seems odd. It's less than two in five, but that is really how the math works out, assuming that you're able to apply the math to the battleground states. Well, here in Canada, 38% will get you a majority government, right? Um, yeah, yeah there are some yeah. instances. I mean, Bob Ray did it in Ontario with 37.1%, so it really depends on the splits. But, I mean, in the U.S., you effectively have a binary choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the bottom line is that there's no doubt that the, the notion of rioting and looting um, is something of a lifeline to Trump's campaign because he was floundering on the basis of his handling of um, coronavirus and on his handling of race issues and the killings of uh, numerous black men. Um, he, he's like, he, he strikes me as, as he is like someone who throws um, gasoline on any available fire. He's an arsonist, and now he's pretending to be a fireman. And it's at some level, it's nauseating. Okay, John, I'll give you a chance on that. Well, I, I, just to say that I, you know, we're all political activists and watchers of, of, of elections, uh, both here and abroad. And, and I've never seen, uh, you know, Charles is right to say that, you know, they're always acrimonious and, and there's very divide and there's polarizing campaigns. But I've never seen it to this stage and this visceral kind of, of, of vitriol that we're hearing from both the, pre- the president and, quite frankly, Biden accusing each other of murdering, uh, you know, Americans and all this kind of stuff. It's just it's just an incredible what we're seeing in, in the U.S. Um, I think that, you know, the, the conventions were interesting to see how they all evolved, given the fact that they weren't in, in person, and at least some of the Democrats were, the Republicans had some. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I do think 
that the divide between the the the, the polar the, the popularity between Biden and Trump is narrowing, and Trump is starting to get a bit of an edge now on on some of the uh, the battleground states. So it'll be interesting to see on November the third what happens. Yeah, uh, interesting is putting it mildly. We've got to wrap things up, Karen. What would you like to leave us with? No, I think that um, you know again, everyone is nervous about going back to school and. Um, not to minimize the risks because they're there, but I think getting the kids back to school is going to be uh, such an important uh, monumental step for the kids and the teachers. And uh, working through it, I think, uh, will be something that we just we will do and be stronger for it. John, well, I, 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 school. Uh, there's no question that the next the next week, the two weeks is going to be school, and then of course, what's going to happen beyond that. Uh, I hope and pray that everything is good. I, I give teachers and, and, and school uh, administrators full credit for those who, who are willing to and are going to try to make this thing work. I think it's important for our kids' uh, uh, education and, and for parents as well. Charles? Stephen Del Duca. He's been leader since early March, um, obviously doing the hard work of rebuilding the Ontario Liberal Party after the disastrous results of the 2018 election. He has been extremely active this summer. He's come forward with a a lot of different policy ideas. He has been uh, very available in the media. And to say that he's in witness protection is frankly unfair to him. Okay. Uh, 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 My bad. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Okay. Thank you all. Uh, That's all the time we have. Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Bird. Appreciate it. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.